and welcome to Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. Listeners are advised that today's broadcast contains triggering content related to residential schools, day schools, Indigenous childhood trauma, and abuse. But it also contains a happy story as well. On October 5, 2021, Queen's University bestowed an honorary doctorate in law to Raymond Mason, an Ojibwe activist, member of the Peguis First Nation in Manitoba, and founder and chairperson of Spirit Wind, Inc., which organizes residential and Indian day school survivors in Manitoba and also played a key role in the development of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. Dr. Mason, a residential and Indian day school survivor, has also published a riveting memoir, Spirit of the Grassroots People Seeking Justice for Indigenous Survivors of Canada's Colonial Education System. With us now to talk about his life and life's work is Dr. Raymond Mason. Welcome, Ray. Hi. I hope we have enough time to talk about my whole my life story, but because it's it's quite lengthy to say the least. Oh, indeed! Thank you so much. We have plenty of time today, and congratulations again upon receiving your honorary doctorate. And thank you for joining us and sharing so much of your time and and your story with our listeners. The floor is yours, sir. Please share anything you'd like to about your story and your many years of work seeking justice for survivors of residential schools. Well, as we, as everybody knows, you know, we were all children at the time. And, uh, and mm-hmm. you know, back in my days and back in the community, uh, in those days, there's no such thing as, a, as a being picked up by a bus and taken to school. And then when you got to school, flicking a switch, you got, you got light. You got heat and, and all that wonderful stuff that our children have, are, have today. We had to work to walk to school. We had to cut wood and make a fire to warm up our, our place of where we're going to learn in the classrooms. And, and we had to have, uh, we had classes during the day, but we didn't have to worry too much about electricity. And, and then when we got home, we had to carry water, same thing, cut wood. And, uh, and of course, our water that we got home, our parents had to boil the water to make sure it was safe to drink. You know, so, so uh, mm-hmm. uh, and things were very original, let's say, let's say the least. You know, there were no vehicles, no cars. You know, I think there was there was uh, one individual in our community that owned a vehicle, and and uh, you know, so it was mostly kind of kind of a well, we didn't know any different. We did we thought that was the day, that was the thing of the day, you know. And, and I never left mm-hmm. my so much I left my yard, our home yard, and. Uh, you know, until the day came when the, uh, you know, the saddest day of my life came when uh, an RCP officer and the Indian agent came to knock on our door and they had a, they had a, that time it was called the Grey Goose bus, uh, bus lines used to travel back and forth from, from uh, Pegasus to, to Winnipeg. And that, and that was their business, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. 
But the Indian agent and the RCMP officer came to our, I remember that morning very, very vividly because they came for me. And, uh, and, and, uh, and any other sisters or any, anybody else of my family. But, but my sisters, they scrambled and they ran away and they hid. But, the, but I, I got, mm-hmm. they had me and uh, they were actually pu- pulling me and struggling with my, with my mom and my stepfather at the time. And, uh, and they're actually, uh, you know, having a tussle and my mom was screaming. I remember that. And uh, it was a terrible, terrible feeling, you know, and they got me separated from my mom and, and took me to the bus. I think the bus was about maybe 50 yards from where we were waiting for us. And uh, I remember the bus driver telling the, I mean, the Indian agent telling the bus driver, you take this child to, so he had all the directives in a, in a note, like, you know, and uh, make sure you watch this child. Don't let him out of your sight. And uh, the way the bus went. And <clears throat> I had no clue where I was going. And, you know, it, it was, it was hard, you know, excuse me, you know. I'm very sorry. Uh, you know, I didn't realize what, what they had in mind. And, and, and that is when they, they took me to the first residential school that I attended, and that was Bertle Indian Residential School, Bertle, Manitoba. And uh, when I, I was so terrified and, uh, and, and, you know, on the way to Bertle, I had to sit and wait to, to catch another bus from Winnipeg to Bertle. And that seemed forever and ever, because I had to sit there in front of, the, uh, the the workers or the people that are working in in the Grey Goose bus uh, depot, and I was sitting there, and I, I wouldn't move because I was so I was so terrified, and uh, and they made me sit mm-hmm. there and, and bring me a little something to eat and something to drink. It's like a it's like a little dog, you know, and I felt so awful because. I was so scared to even ask for the bathroom. So I peed myself right there, you know, and uh, it, it was horrible, horrible. And I didn't have no clothes to change into, you know, and, uh, and you know, and people, who would, strangers would be walking by me, looking at me as if I was a, a, an animal, you know, and, uh, <clears throat> That's how I felt, and then to get to, and then to get to Myrtle, it was dark when I got there, and there was two female, uh, uh, two female women that was work that was working at the at the Birdle Residential School at the time. They picked me up, and uh, 
and then uh, uh, that's where all the you know all the abuses started. You know, it started in that their car. You know, from the bus depot to bus station to the residence, and uh, you know, uh, I really don't want to go into the details of what happened, but that's okay. This is your story and your time. You know, and and then when I finally arrived to where I was supposed to be, be or sent to, and it was just like a, a dungeon. It was like a jail, big concrete steps. You know, everything was was uh, metal. You know, and then I was taken to this big dormitory was where there was uh, uh, bunk beds all in line and. Kids were there's other people, other kids sleeping there, and I was given a bed, and and, uh, and that's where my my life in that era started. I was in that system for twelve years, you know, and and uh, I was transferred three years later to to Port of Ferry, and. Uh, uh, things were very similar, very, you know, like we had to work hard. We spent a lot of more time in the yard working in the gardens and in the farm and uh, looking after the cattle and the pigs. And you know, we spent more time in, in, in those places than we did in the classroom. You know, so basically most of the food that we ate we we grew it. We we worked for it, you know. And uh, and and uh, you know there was a lot of abuses that happened, and uh, that took place. You know, older older boys uh, would take advantage of us younger boys, and you know they would uh, they would rape us, you know. And, and uh, and so did the older girls, you know. And uh, I remember getting caught in in the uh, I forget the name uh, place, the laundry room. I think it was. I don't know what I was doing in there, but I got caught. And by these two big girls, and they they, they it, it's like I said, it's hard to talk about, but it's real, you know. And I remember my mom passing away. That was in 1962, and uh, I was sitting in the in the study room with a bunch of other students, and I got this call over the over the mic, <clears throat> and uh, uh, Ray Mason, come to the principal's office. You have a phone call. In those days, to receive a phone call. You know, you were somebody or something, you know. But that was a phone call that I would never ever want to receive, or anybody. I don't bestow that on anybody because that's all I got from my my sister. She was calling me from the Indian agent's office in Pegasus, telling me that my mother had passed away. You know, and that was July twelfth. 
I just broke down. I just, everything went blank. I don't remember actually what took place till the next year or so after that. <clears throat> and now we had, to make, we had to make plans to go to the funeral. And uh, I thought, well, you know, you know, I, I didn't know what to think. Well, I didn't know. Actually, I didn't really understand what a funeral was because I was still young. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, all I knew is that there was two big brulee guys taking me. They were afraid that I was going to run away, I guess, you know, and they were going to make sure I wasn't going to run away, you know. And uh, so I remember when we got, got home to Pegwas, there was a week, you know, a week as a service to, uh, in the evening before the funeral would take place. And, and I felt so belittled, so, so uh, uh, I don't know how to put it, but I was, they handcuffed me to one of the big boys so that to make sure that I wouldn't run away on them, you know? And, and I felt like everybody was looking at me like that. I felt like a prisoner, you know, like uh, to, uh, to, uh, be handcuffed to a guy, and yet I didn't do anything wrong. Like, you know, and uh, today I know where those guys came from. They came from the provincial uh, police services. They were actually police services, you know, and uh, I thought, wow, you know, they treated me like a prisoner, (laughs) you know, and uh, and then my family members, my friends, they were looking at me like a total stranger, scared. I know oh, what did you do wrong? And what did you do? I didn't do nothing. I just come home to mom's funeral. And so, so I begged those guys that morning, please, I said, I wouldn't run away from you. I want to. I want to be there without you guys handcuffing me. You know, so it was stuff like this that I had to deal with. Mm-hmm. You know? And you know, and when I speak about some of the abuses that took place, I I speak and I on behalf of the people that I represent, and that's the thousands and thousands of survivors, our people that went through that system, you know, and like I said, I went through it through 12 years, you know, and, and you know, those, this is just, and I used to try and run away from home, you know, and I get caught every time and I was actually tortured, you know, and, uh, you know, I remember, being tied up on a bunk bed like this, and my my hands up on each corner, and my feet on the, on the bottom, and my my clothes taken off, and that's where that, that short, fat supervisor, I forget, they, they, they used to call him Mr. Chasky, strapped me, and he was showing me, using me as an example, 
this is what will happen to you if you run away. And and he would, you know, with me. It got to a point where my the strapping, it felt warm. Like it was, it wasn't so painful. But I would pass it. I would pass out. You know, and and he just laughed. You know. And why do that to a child? You know, all I was trying to do is to get home. I wanted to get home. And uh, and we were told by by our colleague, my my fellow schoolmates, well, if you want to make it home, you want to go home, just follow the railway tracks. And you know, the, the railway tracks will take you home. Oh, what a... Well, a bunch of, uh, you know, that was a bunch of uh, baloney as far as I'm concerned. <clears throat> because when I, when I ran away, they would they would uh, head us off, you know. And uh, I remember running away with a friend of mine called Donald Atkinson. And they caught me, but they didn't catch him. And... There's only a few months ago, I found out that he made it home, and and he he, he was he, he made it home, and he, to his family, and now he's a great he's a great grandfather and all that. I only found out a few months ago that he was alive, and all these years I thought he was dead because I couldn't find him, mm-hmm. you know, and. Uh, so uh, you'll see on my book, in my book, a memoir, a cover. The cover is a picture, and it depicts the story of an elder holding a child's hand. And that's in reference to myself and to my fellow students, my fellow classmates. I try to make go home and use the railroad tracks as a way to get home, to follow, to get, get you home. The elder says, is telling that child, the next time you want to go home, and he's pointing up to the Big Dipper, go by the Big Dipper, and you'll be always facing north, and you'll never get lost. That's what that elder is telling that child in the picture of my book, you know, and I thought, oh man, what a, what a, you know, so clear and so, you know, what a message, you know, and and it's so right, you know, and of course I didn't know that at the time, you know, and and anyway, after Port Superior, I got transferred to Dr. Mackay Indian Residential School. And uh, things wasn't quite as bad, you know, uh, because I was bigger. I was a lot, I was a lot bigger and I knew how to protect myself and and I was, you know, able to fight for myself. And uh, and that's when my life changed in a different way. Like I was walking down the streets to my classroom 
and I I got a message from my from my mom. You know, to let things go. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Whenever you're ready, sir. She told me to to forgive. Forgive yourself first before you can forgive somebody else. Says, I want you to learn that. And I want you to be the best when whatever you do from this day forward. I stood there and I cried. It was on the street, walking down the main street from Dr. Manitoba. You know, it, uh, and what a powerful message from my mom, mom. And I promised her that from that day forward, I was going to be the best in whatever I do or whatever I encounter. I will do my best. And I will. I will forgive everybody that did me wrong. That was quite a a task, you know. I remember, I think I was in grade, I'm still, you know, I I remember when uh, I would just, I'm below average student at that time. I was going to Smith Jackson School in Dolphin. And uh, and uh, I, I was, you know, a mediocre, like I wasn't doing very well in classes. And from that day forward, everything changed when I got that message, that, in, that vision from my mom. <clears throat> I first the next year, following year, I got an award for the the greatest achievement or greatest improved student from the past. I started getting second best or the best marks in my class every year, and and even in my sports. Wow. You know, I was a, I was a champion boxer for three years. I was uh, I was a late middleweight champion of Canada, a- amateur, for three years because I wanted to be the best. I had to be the best, you know. And uh, and even in track and field, curling, you know, football. I, I was I was I was quite a. Uh, uh, I became known from my my greater achievements, you know, for 
my my accolades and all that. And and at at that time, the uh, non-native girls were were after me, and uh, of course I was going out with one, and and you know one day, I I was actually trying to trying to scratch the, the color out of my arms. My, I didn't want to be, I guess I didn't want to be Indian anymore, you know, and, uh, but it never dawned me until I left that system, you know, mm -hmm. wow, not wanting to be an Indian, uh, you know, my, with my own people, you know, that was <laughs> a colonial education system almost succeeded with me. Yeah. And and uh, you know, and that is why when I set out to do the work, the work that I did for the survivors, I'm jumping ahead here now. Uh, you know, uh, from uh, I worked in nickel mines. I worked in various jobs. I come out of that system. Uh, a very confused, angry person. I didn't know what I wanted in the world. I I couldn't keep relationships with my girlfriends. You know, I didn't. I, you know, I I just I was a I was an animal. I became a drunk and I, and an alcoholic and and uh, well, I lost a lot of good jobs. You know, and I couldn't figure myself out. But I thank the good Lord that the judge sentenced me to, to go and spend time with this, this psychiatrist. So I spent two and a half years with this psychiatrist. And she, she was a very, very patient lady. She listened to everything that I had to say. And all of a sudden, one more one evening when I finished my session with her, I was driving home. And it's like somebody flicked a light in my brain, a switch. Oh, wow, that's what's happened. That is the reason why I treat I brought my children up the way I did. That is the reason why I did this. That is the reason why I became an alcoholic. That is the reason why, you know, I, I had all of my answers. Bang, 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 bang. Just one down because I found myself. I found myself. You know, and uh, when I say that, I realized there and then that it was the colonial education system that bring, brought me up that way. You know, when you're brought up as a number and you don't get the nurturing of a parent, of a mother, you know, how in the heck do you expect me or anybody else, my colleagues, my fellow survivors, how do you expect them to be good parents? You know, because because 
I didn't realize. I didn't know how to bring up my, my kids. You know, I didn't know that you had to spend the time that parents normally spend with their children, you know. So I had to get busy after I realized what kind of animal beast I was and go to my children, first of all, and apologize to them and explain to them why I was so heavy-handedly like a sergeant when I brought my children. You know, so where did that come from? Where did, where did it come from? In the colonial educational system, you know. And you know, when I was doing this, writing my book, and when I was, I did some uh, research of my own, and I wow. found that the prisoners, that they're almost what, 75, 85% Aboriginal, you know, you know why? Because if when you check them out, and I did, you check them out and talk to them, 95% of those people all come from the Aboriginal, from the colonial educational system. Either their mom, their uncle, or their dad, or their brother, all came from the roots, that is, from the colonial education system. You know, and, uh, and a lot of them were former survivors, uh, residential school survivors. And some of them were survivors that were in prison. Why? Because it gave them a sense of security. It gave them a roof over their head, a bed in three squares a day, you know? And I thought, man, these guys need help, you know? You know, and, and I start talking to them, you know, boy, oh boy, you know, it's a, it's, it's a rude awakening, you know? And, and, and uh, but it's real, it's real. And those drunks that are, that are sleeping in the corners, you won't talk to that individual. You'll find out, find out, get your answer the same. Answer will be the same, that they came from the colonial educational system. And they're, they're alcoholics, you know. And I thank the good Lord that I found, found my answer. You know, I don't know where I would be today if it wasn't for me finding myself. You know, so I, I, uh, it's a, it's not the best life to go through, to live through and to experience. And I'm sure I speak for thousands of survivors that went through the same system that I did. <clears throat> And, uh, you know, uh, when, I, when, I, when I started to write my book, I wanted to write a story about my legacy to show the people what I did and what I had to go through. And the reason why I started with my, my autobiography is because I wanted to show the people that I lived, I experienced it, and I have every right to say and write 
what I wanted to write and say, because it's the truth and nothing but the truth. You know, I remember the day when we first started working on the Indian Residential School Agreement, you know, to get justice for our people. I used to meet, gather and meet with my former classmates. There was four of them and myself. That was in about 1986. And we used to reminisce and talk about our experiences in the schools. And we used to talk about what, you know, what was, what, how they were harmed, and how, you know, I was harmed and, and so forth. Then when, when then we said, don't you think what Canada did to us by put us, putting us in this, in those system uh, was wrong? And they all said, yeah. I think we should make Canada accountable for what they did to us. And that's where we started. That's where the Indian Residential School movement started. We assumed the name, the Manitoba Indian Residential School Movement. That was the first organization name that we took, took on. And we, we worked at our own expense, and we still do it today, you know. And uh, we, uh, and the reason for that, that we choose to work on our own expense is because Canada cannot control us. Canada cannot tell us what to say or what to do, you know. And I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you, uh, you know, it was so, my, my thinking and my plans were so accurate when I say that because when it came for the lawyers, when they went to trial for the Baxter and the Cloud case, and we supported those, those cases in the court, courts, you know, uh, when, when they were going to trial, Darcy Merker, the lead lawyer, called me and asked me if, they, if I could write, if I was still president of Spirit Wind. I said, yes, I am, sir. He says, would you write a letter in support of us? And I said, what do you need a letter for? We're going to trial. And man, I just, I had cold chill through my hmm. body, you know. And, and uh, I, uh, this was shortly after I took a delegation to the House of Commons. I was in the House of Commons. I, I made an address, we made an address. We approached the Aboriginal Standing Committee in the House of Commons. I took the late Flora Merrick, her daughter, the late Grace Daniels, and my colleague, uh, Ruth Roulette and my lawyer Dennis Tronia. And uh, we were in the House of Commons and we made a presentation uh, to, every, to, to them. And you know, everybody in that, in that delegation and in that meeting was crying. 
including myself. It was so emotional. And then we were coming out, coming out of the meeting after we were done. And all of a sudden, my cell phone started ringing. And there was somebody from the House of Senate asking if we would go and do, make the same presentation to them in the afternoon. And we said, yes. So we kind of made history there because we were in the House of Commons the same day in the Senate, Senate's house the same day. And during the, this whole, over the years, uh, uh, you know, I'm going back and forth, you know, and if you don't mind, during the years, During the years, uh, uh, we developed what they call the National Indian Presidential School Survivor Society. And I ended up chairing that organization the last year, seven years. And during that time, I got to speak to and lobby with Mikhail Jong, Governor General mm -hmm. Mikhail Jong. And that was shortly after our meeting that we had with, at the House of Commons. And that's when we broke ice, at the, when it all started, you know. And, and, and I said, uh, you know, I say I'm glad because when Darcy Merker phoned me, he could not go to AFN or AMC, the Grand Chiefs or anything, uh, for the support that we gave them. We are a native organization, but we had no ties to anybody. We had no money, no funds to, that Canada can threaten. Canada would threaten those organizations and say, well, if you're involved in a, in a lawsuit against us, you may have problems accessing oh, your funds. You know, mm -hmm. but we didn't have any to cut. They couldn't <laughs> pay me to shut up. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the reason why I refuse to have any of those kind of ties with any native organization or with Canada because of that, you know. And we did eventually get some funding later, but it came after the fact, you know, after the fact. We, because we broke base and Canada uh, finally, uh, the courts approved the cloud case. Mm -hmm. And my lawyer, our lawyer, Darcy Merker, was the lead lawyer for both the Cloud case and the Baxter case. And Spirit Wind heavily, heavily supported the, the Baxter case. And if the Baxter case didn't get certified, if the, I mean, the Cloud case didn't get certified, the Baxter case would have, it was right in next in line. And Darcy Merker was the lead lawyer there as well for us, you know. So, so uh, you know, I just want to take a step back. And when I when I started all this work for our people, it was back in 1986. You know, at the time I met the original five, four of us, five, four, five of us, and uh, uh, we used to meet and reminisce. And that's when I got a calling from the, my creator that I had to do something. And I had to step up 
and do something for our people. And that we had to, we had to, you know, to make Canada accountable for their actions, for putting us in these places they call schools and institutions. You know, so, so, you know, I, uh, I, uh, you know, it was quite an undertaking. You know, when you get a calling from the creator, you have to do what you, you're told to do. You know, and uh, so where am I going to start? And how am I going to start? And man, you know, I, it was a learning process as well as I, I, you know. And then that's where I said, okay, this is my journey, my healing journey. I will begin my healing journey as well. And that was back in, it was 1986. And uh, we had a lot of work to do. I traveled all over, pretty well all over Canada, spreading the word, talking about what happened to us in, the, in these residential schools. And, uh, and I, I, you know, and I had to sell the, the, you know, the message. I was a messenger. You know, I had to sell the idea to the people to join us as one, one unit, one voice, you know, and so that we could, that we could work as one unit, one voice, and Canada would have to listen to us. So I traveled to pretty well every First Nation Assembly as I could, as many as I could. And I spoke to the chiefs across Canada. And that's where, you know, I gained support. And, 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 and you know, and, and uh, it wasn't easy because in the early beginning, it took me six years just to get a lawyer to, to help us, and, uh, you know, because every lawyer was afraid of repercussions from the government of Canada, you know, and I, one lawyer stood up and that was Dennis Pontiac. He says, I think you have a case here. And that's when it all unfolded, you know, it, and, and uh, you know, and then we got <clears throat> through, I want to thank Phil Fontaine he was a grand chief then at the time, AFN. He helped consummate our work that we we're working on. And I want to thank him for that very much. And, uh, you know, and uh, because without his help, you know, uh, I think it would have been much harder, you know, to, to get the, the job consummated. And then back in, in 1980, 80, so I think I forget what year it was, uh, 86, the residential school did not allow the day school survivors as part of that agreement. And then that's when Spirit Wind and myself, we sued Canada for the day, Indian day school because they were left out of the residential <laughs> school agreement. And, and uh, Again, it took a lot of work, a lot of travel, a lot of, you know, talking, a lot of, 
you know, negotiating and, you know, so uh, I want to thank my late friend, Gary McLean. You know, he came in in the latter part of our work and he helped consummate the Indian Day School Agreement as well. And, you know, so now here we are, we, we have the Indian Residential School Agreement, the Indian Day School Agreement, but there's still approximately 165,000 to 200,000 people of our people that needs to get their justice and compensation as well because they're left out of both agreements. Why? Because Canada is saying that, that well, we, you know, the school that you went to was provincially owned or church owned or publicly owned or privately owned, or you went to a, you went to a sanatorium. So, and we had no, no authority there. We had no boardroom mem members. We had no staff members there. So therefore we're not re responsible for what went on within the four walls. That's what, that's what they said. Canada said that. And I thought, what a frivolous excuse, you know. So I say this is my third, uh, third, um, how do you call it? Third, my third part, third part of my journey. And when, when I finished my journey, <clears throat> my I finished the, the third part. That sh that would be the end of my journey. I I feel that I would satisfy what I needed to do for our people, you know. And until I do that, like I always say. I told, I told Canada, I told the AFN, I told the chiefs of AFN that we will never have complete reconciliation with our people until all those people, people the survivors that are left out of the, both those agreements get their justice and compensation. Then we can say we have complete reconciliation because it's not fair for them, you know, it's not fair uh, for, to leave them out because how can we say we have complete reconciliation when you got you know, people that, that need to have their justice as well, you know? So uh, we are working on another class action to, to uh, make Canada accountable. I spoke to uh, the, uh, then uh, the Honorable Caroline Bennett. I don't know if she's still the Minister of Indian Affairs, but she was when I was speaking with her before the elections and uh, that we needed to work out one arrangement, one agreement that would satisfy all those different types of schools instead of taking us to court for each separate school that, you know, because class actions are very costly, time consuming. And, and in the meantime, we're all dying by the thousands each year, you know, and, and it's not fair, you know, and uh, so uh, 
that is what I'm working on right now. And Spirit Wind Inc. Uh, we are we are working hard, and we should have a, a statement of claim within the next two or three months. And uh, so that's what we're working on right now. And uh, uh, and I hope I hope that I can be here to see the day that that happens because uh, I was diagnosed with uh, a terminal disease in uh, in March of last year, and it's uh, cystic fibrosis of the lungs and. Uh, and it's scarring of the lungs. It's called scarring of the lungs, really. And uh, and it's it causes shortness of breath, extreme exhaustion, and weakness and tiredness. And uh, the doctor uh, said I have something like three to five years, you know, and uh, so I have to try and get a double lung transplant. And I can't do it in Canada because of my age. And uh, however, I do have a slim hope to get it done in the United States. And uh, I don't know if I can make, make it happen because, because uh, I'm, uh, I don't have the, the financial resources to to pay for that because they do not honor Canada's medical programs that we have here in Canada. You know, so uh, uh, I I'm hoping that something a miracle will happen and and may open a road, for, pave the way for me to to see you know to. So, so I'll be here a few more long, years longer, you know. But uh, until then, I'm going to be me. I'm going to be strong. And, uh, you know, like uh, I'm a fighter. I wasn't a boxer for nothing. I wasn't a champion for nothing. And, and I will always be one until the day I die. You know, and uh, so uh, I guess that's, Mostly, you know, most of the stuff that I can talk about, and I know I know I'll think about later on. Oh, I forgot this, I forgot that, you know. <clears throat> but I I know if people would read read my book, they would certainly learn a lot about Ray Mason and all all the work that I did to help our people, and I and I. I want to thank Queen's University and their people. Man, they did a bang up job, you know, on, in honoring me and with their highest award, with the honorary, the honorary document of laws. You know, and I, I'm still reeling from that. You know, I'm still overwhelmed by, you know, and excited about being a doctor, no, <laughs> you know, so, 
Anyway, do you have any more questions? <laughs> no, I think that's all. Thank you very much. Uh, that Thank you so much, Ray, for sharing such uh, uh, deeply personal memories of your experiences, uh, trauma that you experienced, uh, your personal growth since then when you when you found your calling and and the beginning of beginnings of your healing journey and certainly the uh, great work that you and your uh, friends and uh, friends and colleagues have undertaken over the many years to uh, collect stories uh, to uh, talk with this or that particular official to really make some action happen on behalf of all survivors of not only the residential schools but also Indian day schools too. We learned so much from your personal story today, and thank you so much for sharing. It, it really means a lot to us. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. And, uh, you know, uh, I sure, I'm sure you will meet again someday, and 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 uh, we'll we'll know each other better. <laughs> Indeed, and I hope we can do so in person as well whenever you make it to campus. So, folks, we have been chatting with. Dr. Raymond Mason, who just received an honorary doctorate from Queen's University on October 5th. Uh, Dr. Mason has written a memoir entitled Spirit of the Grassroots People Seeking Justice for Indigenous Survivors of Canada's Colonial Education System. We've learned so much from Ray himself today, but please do check out his book as well to uh, learn more about Ray's story and the work that he and his colleagues have been undertaking for so many years now. Thank you again, Ray, for your time. You're very welcome. Hi, miigwech. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Dr. Raymond Mason's story today in this special broadcast of Campus Beat. In this next segment, we present a recording of the presentation of Dr. Mason's honorary doctorate in law on October 5th, 2021, recognizing his many years of work in fighting for the rights of residential school survivors. Thank you for joining us here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Good afternoon, everyone. Bonjour à tous et à toutes. My name is Jim Leach, and I have the honor of serving as the 14th Chancellor in the 180-year history of Queen's University. Today, I serve as its Chancellor Emeritus. Now, through the magic of technology, we are happy to have so many family and friends of honorary graduate Raymond Mason able to join us live for this special honorary degree ceremony. I'd also like to acknowledge those who have an official role today. Elder Doreen McPherson, Chief Glenn Hudson, and counselors of Pegasus First Nation joining us from their council chambers. Also Queen's Principal Patrick Dean, the university's elder in residence, Deb St. Amand, and representatives from Queen's University Faculty of Education. And finally, a big shout out to all who are watching this video 
at the Pegas First Nation Community Ceremony in late October. Now, although today's technology has allowed us to gather from across Turtle Island, this ceremony emanates from Queen's University, which is situated on the traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. I am grateful to live as an uninvited guest upon the territorial territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabeg Nation. We also acknowledge the longer history of this land predating the establishment of the earliest European colonies and acknowledge its significance for the Indigenous peoples who lived here and continue to live upon it and whose practices and spiritualities were tied to the land and continue to develop in relationship to the territory and its other inhabitants today. It is my understanding that this territory is included in the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Iroquois Confederacy and the Confederacy of the Ojibwe and allied nations to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. The Kingston Indigenous community continues to reflect the area's Anishinaabek and Haudenosaunee roots. And as I said previously, there is also a significant Métis community, as well as First Peoples from other nations across Turtle Island present with us today. Now, we are together today to bestow an honorary doctorate of laws, or LLD as it's referred to, on Raymond Mason, and to welcome him into the Queen's community. Such honorary degrees are awarded only to those individuals who the university deems to have made outstanding contributions to a discipline or field of work, to a community, to society, or to the university. Queen's has been awarding such honors since 1858. And during my seven years as chancellor, I had the great pleasure of conferring about 10 each year. Awardees range from indigenous leaders such as Justice and, and now Chancellor Murray Sinclair, to Nobel Prize winners such as Dr. Art McDonald, to music icons and Queen's alumni, the tragically hip. Water. Each of these ceremonies were unique and special. Special to the recipient, of course, but also to their family, friends, and the nomination teams who advocated for them. I also got to witness the inspiration that each of these honorary doctors meant to the graduating class that were present. The students may not remember the chancellor or principal who gave them their degree, but they certainly remember the honorary doctorate and the few words of advice given at their convocation. So uh, my advice to you, Sir Amon, Mr. Uh, Mason, is to savor this moment. It is your work, your efforts, that will be rightfully recognized today. I would now like to invite Elder Doreen McPherson to offer a welcome prayer and to say a few words from the council chambers at Pegasus First Nation. Fancy, bonjour, my relatives. My name is Doreen McPherson, and my spirit name is Papa Say Mikanak, Spotted Turtle. I'm honored to help you start the day in a good way. Let us pray. 
We confess, Creator, our need for you today. We need your healing and your grace. We need hope restored to our people. We come to you and bring you the places we are hurting. You know the pain our people carried for so many years. Thank you for the time to reflect over the past week and remember our lost loved ones who didn't make it home. Today, sit with us as we, as we celebrate and acknowledge the work of those who have cleared the path for healing. Today, with your blessing, we honor and show love to Raymond Mason as he receives a well-earned acknowledgement. Thank you, Creator, for giving us this beautiful day for this time. May God bless you. and Thank you, Raymond, as you continue in your research. We give thanks to Queen's University for making this possible and all of the survivors. Amen. Miigwech. A moment of silence to remember those that didn't come home. Oh. Thank you. Today, the people and community of Peguis First Nation are immensely proud to acknowledge one of our very own members. Celebrate individuals who have roots in the connections to the region and has made a significant contribution to the national <laughs> cultural improvement of Indigenous peoples. Raymond Mason has gained recognition for excellence or excellence in recognition in the development of the Indian residential school compensation process, as well as being instrumental in the McLean Day School Initiative. Raymond Mason is a Pegasus Band member and a residential school survivor. He lived life full, filled with hard work, educating himself, managing and owning a store, volunteering in several in, in several programs, as well as often playing a key role in leadership. During these busy years, his residential school experience prompted him to research the truth through stories from fellow survivors and to find a way to help our, our people heal. His actual research began in 1986. Along with the five other school survivors, he initiated the process through small meetings, gatherings, information and often over coffee. As the process emerged, the research led Raymond in visits in all directions throughout Canada in, in, in support, in search of survivor stories. His determination and through the, the, the daily support from the creator, Raymond self-supported his research financially through the birthing years. Finally, after approximately seven years, <clears throat> faith in the research finally Finally, support came, as well as the help of a lawyer. Raymond is the author of a book called Grassroots of the People, and is a message from the survivors, including the ones that didn't make it home. Raymond played a key role in the development of the Indian Day School Initiative, as well as seeking a name that provided a cultural meaning. With guidance from the deceased elder David Murdoch, the name immersed spirit wind, that, that meaning that the spirit never leaves. This is the beginning in the process for compensation. Mark Twain once said that there are basically two types of people, people who accomplish things and people who claim to accomplish things. The first group is less crowded. Today, because of the people here and those listening, because your hard, of your hard work, Raymond, your dedication, your sacrifice, your talent, we have made Mr. Twain's first group a little more crowded. 
thank you for shepherding through the Queen's University, the next generation <laughs> of researchers for the continued improvement in the lives of all indigenous peoples. Thank you for being a tutor, a mentor, and a friend. Your awakened in young minds entrusted to you a desire to learn, ability to achieve, and a capacity to lead. Today's your celebration. Miigwech. Thank you. Big wish, Elder McPherson. I would now like to invite Chief Glenn Hudson to offer a few words from the council chambers at Peguis First Nation. Yes, first of all, I want to give thanks for today. I give thanks to one of our very uh, own members, Ray Mason, and his work that he has undertaken in terms of the residential school and day school settlements. Uh, Ray is known as a fighter and uh, his commitment and dedication has led him to this body of work uh, through Spirit Wind. And uh, I know with his continued support, um, we were able to uh, finish the body of work in terms of uh, paying an honoring and also acknowledgement to all the residential school uh, people out there and the day school people. And uh, Ray's background as a fighter has driven him and certainly has brought his fight and commitment forward uh, through this process. So today we give thanks for, for Raymond and uh, his family and certainly the support that he has garnered uh, through this process and this body of work. On behalf of the people of Peguis, on behalf of our council, uh, we give thanks for Ray Mason. Miigwech. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Chief Hudson Miigwech. We are now joined for a special message from our principal, Patrick Dean. It's a coincidence, but also very important to note that today, as I record this message of congratulations for Raymond Mason, we have been observing Canada's first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Raymond, warmest congratulations to you on this the highest honor which the university can bestow, which recognizes your extraordinary courage in overcoming your own challenges as a residential school survivor, but more important, leading the movement to seek redress for other residential school survivors across the country. The education of our people about the residential school history, the legacy of the schools and the situation of indigenous people in our country today is an important and critical aspect of our life as a university. And for that reason, we're very proud to honor you with this degree. Almost congratulations to you. Thank you very much, uh, Principal Dean. I would now like to call upon the Faculty of Education Elder in Residence and nominator for this honorary degree, Deb Sedamon, to present the honored graduate. Miigwech. Mr. Chancellor Emeritus, by the authority of the Senate, I have the pleasure to present to you that at your hands he may receive the degree of Doctor of Laws Honoris Causa Raymond Mason. Distinguished community leader, entrepreneur, administrator, lecturer, and activist, chairman of Spiritwind Canada, and chair of the Elder Advisory Committee of the Peguis First Nation, proud graduate of Success College and the University of Manitoba, survivor of the residential school system who has com combated 
the lasting effects of abuse and neglect, and whose struggle has defined him as a person and the direction of his life, whose indomitable spirit took him from the nickel mines in Thompson, Manitoba, to the establishment of multiple businesses within the Pegwis First Nation, providing employment for many and service to his community. A resolute figure who dedicated himself further in the cause of his people and to the reconciliation <coughs> of the traumas of the past, who would bring his skill and talent in service to both the governments of Canada and Manitoba in the cause of spurring economic development among First Nations and Métis communities, whose leadership of Spiritwind brought him to testify before Parliament on behalf of Indian day school survivors, helping to support the Baxter National Class Action that would see both the 2006 Indian Residential School Agreement, as well as the impetus for the establishment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and who would fight even further to ensure that Indian day school survivors who were left out of the original settlement were acknowledged and recognized, culminating in the largest such settlement in Canadian history in 2019, which included an estimated 200,000 individuals, and who continues his commitment by attending every Assembly of First Nations annual six meeting to provide updates to the current class actions surrounding former Indigenous students, whose autobiography, Spirit of Grassroots People, Justice for Indigenous Survivors of Canada's Colonial System, which chronicles a life of determined and principled struggle has transformed countless lives and given hope to a new generation of Indigenous peoples, a chronicle that has been described as an important story for all Canadians. And who, as a guest lecturer in the Master of Education program at Queen's, gives students valuable and unique context which goes far beyond the syllabus, honoring the proud tradition of elders who have inculcated the next generation with knowledge infused with a sense of time, place, and self. Director of Operations and Program Development for the Dakota Ojibwe Tribal Council, Technical Advisor to the Chief and Council of the Swan Lake First Nation, former Chair of the Peguis First Nation Governance Committee, an individual who inspires others through the example of his words and deeds, demonstrating that people of conscience who desire justice can move mountains. A remarkable figure whom we are delighted to welcome today, paying tribute to to his accomplishments with this, our highest award. In the name of this university and by authority of Royal Charter, I admit Raymond Mason to this degree with all of its rights, privileges and responsibilities. Congratulations. And I now would like to ask Dr. Mason to address Uh, first of all, I want to say my name is Raymond Mason for the people that are watching otherwise. <clears throat> and uh, my spirit name is Naganagabo, which means leader up front. <clears throat> and today I would like to uh, say that I'm a very, very proud First Nation member. <clears throat> and, I'm, and, and I'm truly humbled by by the honor given to me by Queen's University and the person who thought to nominate me, Deb Senemont. Thank you very much for this degree of honor and doctrine of law. <clears throat> Receiving this dignified honor means so much to me and my family. 
it, it makes all my efforts and all my hard work that I started back in 1986 worth it all. All right. Excuse me. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm so I'm so humbled and excited because as the way things were in early goings, I never thought in my wildest dreams that this would amount to this, this amazing event for me today. This is a life-changing outlook for, for me and my wife. It goes to show that no matter how big the task is, you, you must have a strong desire and a strong will to succeed. Work hard and never give up and you will achieve your goals. First of all, I, I want to uh, thank in, in, in a special way to my, my wife who, uh, who uh, stuck with me through thick and thin. And also, I want to mention my son sitting behind me there. He's been a great help all along. Thank you, son. And, and I want to thank the rest of the family members that that uh, hopefully are next door <laughs> and and also i want to thank the rest of the family in, in bc that i could not be here you know and and without their support and their help and and knowing that they care for me i don't know you know it would be it would be a little difficult to continue my work I would like to, I would like to honor and sh and uh, acknowledge the and my first few people that that I worked with back in 1986, and we always call ourselves the original five. That was myself, uh, the Danny Highway from uh, To Do Lake First Nation. Uh, the late Russell Tobacco from Moose Lake First Nation, the late Hubert Kamach, and the late and his brother, the late Clifford Kamach from Sabatoyak First Nation. <clears throat> they were they were the first. We were the first committee ever known to start the Indian Residential School movement back then, and. Uh, they were, they were, they were brothers. They were like brothers who sat down with me as a fledging Manitoba Indian Residential School movement, and we resolved that the, the the residential school survivors would be a force to be reckoned with, and that we would pursue for justice and compensation for all survivors of Canada's colonial educational system. There were others that I like to mention. Uh, others like Ruth Roulette, Jim Bear, Marie Tatchen, Charles Harper. And because as time went on, people came and left my committee and I had to fill those vacancies as time went on. And I like to mention Mel Swan. Mel Swan, when he came on board, 
he stuck with me through thick and thin, right through, and he's still with me today. And I also would like to acknowledge Joan Jack, who was our first legal counsel for the National Indian Day School Class Action Lawsuit. Without her, uh, in, uh, her input and, and her willingness to work with us, I really don't think we would have an Indian Day School agreement because this is where it all began and it all started. And I want to apologize to whom I cannot remember uh, <laughs> the many people that that were my board members. And, uh, and I want to say that I never did this alone. There were many players and organizations whose weight and influence added immensely to the momentum once we picked up steam. I want to recognize and acknowledge the former AFN and then National Chief Phil Fontaine, who, who also played a key role in the success. And it was he who negotiated the terms of the reference of the Indian Residential School Agreement with the government of Canada and prevailed on the Prime Minister to issue his apology in the House of Commons. Then, then there is my late friend, the late Gary McLean of Lake Manitoba, who was, who was my collaborator, collaborator, collaborator and colleague until his ultimate passing in 2017. He, he, he was dearly missed. I would like to, I would like to uh, say, also say another special thank you and gratitude to those organizations that, that include my Chief Glenn Hudson, who's beside me here today, and the, the Pegasus counselors who, who are watching, and our, our legal surrender trust, their staff and board members. I want to thank the, the Pegasus TLE Trust, the Pego School Board. I want to thank the, the Interlake Tribal Council and their chiefs and their staff because without their help, when, when I needed to travel and get to functions to do my work and, and to bestow uh, the message, what needs to be done when I needed to talk to the chiefs across Canada. They were there to help me with, uh, with travel and, and, and all that stuff. Otherwise, I don't know if I would have been able to make it. <clears throat> I also, I want to thank the chiefs of Manitoba, the Grand Chiefs, Grand Chief Dumas, Southern Grand Chief Jerry Daniels, the Grand Chief of MKO, and all the chiefs that support me. There's, like I said, there's quite a few of them, and uh, I, I'll hope to see them at a later date. They, they make my job much easier and much uh, knowing to know that, knowing that they are behind me makes it a lot easier. Thank you very much, Chiefs. And, and uh, also, at this time, I want to uh, say that I, I wrote 
a book about my legacy. And I want to say a special thank you to Jackson Penn and Ted Christo of Queens, who edited my book, Spirit of the Grassroots People. Without their input and help, my book may, may have never been published. You, you, you must and purchase and read my book and tell, it will tell you all about my work, my involvement in the, in the fruition and development of the Indian Residential School and these school agreements. And I must, uh, I, I want to uh, say that, uh, that at this time, you know, the, uh, all of this work that I've done, it, it was my journey of healing. I, I got a calling back in 1986 when I was with the original five. I, I, I got a calling from my creator telling me that I must, uh, I must do something for our people, our survivors of Canada, that they need to uh, uh, receive their justice and compensation. I'm, I was told that I had to work with whoever and whomever I, I could that could help us achieve what I set out to do. And in my book, it talks about all of my all of that, my travels. I was in the House of Commons lo lobbying for our people. I was in the House of Senate lobbying for our people. I sat on the the National Indian Residential School Survivor Society for the last seven years, and I spoke to Mikhail Jean, lobbying for our people, and that's where we broke ice back in you know, when the Indian Residential School became a, rea a reality, became certified. And then, and there is a question of, you know, uh, of the unmarked graves. You know, when, when I first heard that, man, I was just like, I was hit with a, a sledgehammer on, on the head. You know, I, I I didn't know what to think. I began to cry. I didn't know whether to cry with joy or, or cry with sadness because, because I had a feeling during my work and all my travels that there was, there was something that was going to be revealed. I never knew for sure when it would come out, but it happened on on May 28, 2021. And, you know, I say I, I, I felt I, I cried with joy because now those children that didn't make it home, their, their voice will be heard. Their justice will happen. Yep. Your time, right? Their justice will happen. I cried with sadness because it took so long, you know, to know 
Right. I could have been one of them. I could have been one of them. And sad to know that I'm thinking that here I thought we are well on our way with reconciliation in Canada. You know, what a blow, you know. You know, how are we going to continue? How are we going to trust each other? How, how are we going to pick up the pieces and carry on? Because we must carry on. We have to carry on. Not only for those children's sake, but for everybody's sake in Canada. And we must try to, to make something of it. And Canada must do the right thing. And that is to take those children back to their rightful places. And that's home. And have a, a, a right, rightful burial. And the last concern I have is that we talk about reconciliation amongst our people. <clears throat> there is approximately 165,000 to 200,000 people that did not receive their justice and compensation from either the residential school or day school. And I, and I know for a fact that we will never ever have complete reconciliation until those people, our survivors, our people, get their reconcil reconciliation as well. And the reason why they're not getting their reconciliation is because Canada is saying we do not own those buildings. We didn't, we didn't have no board members, no staff members in those organizations. So therefore, we're not responsible for what went on in between the four walls. Well, what a frivolous way to try and get out of your responsibility, Canada. You must do the right thing. And I, I will never rest in peace until I finish my journey and those people receive their justice. Hi, miigwech. Oh. Thank you very much, Dr. Raymond. Your words of humility, inspiration, and tenacity in seeking justice for so many and healing for so many. In your own words, their justice will happen. I, for one, have taken your advice already and ordered your book. So I guarantee I'll have finished reading it by the end of the week. You know, when I listen to your words, I think of the Queen's University song, which is in Gaelic, and I won't try to translate it for you or, or take you through all the words, but it ends with the refrain, Kea, 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 which translated means never surrender. And that is a testament to your life. Congratulations on your honorary degree. And I now, now like to call upon Elder Doreen McPherson to offer a closing prayer. I'm honored to.
to be able to close this day, this beautiful day, this beautiful celebration. Let us pray. Almighty Father, Creator, together we see miigwech for this beautiful day that you have given us. Thank you for all the creation and the blessings bestowed upon us. As this gathering celebration comes to an end, thank you for guiding us with your blessings and instilling the work in Raymond, the calling that you've given him to do the work that he's set for, for us. For without your presence in our lives, nothing is possible. Continue to watch over all our survivors and all of those in leadership, as well as Raymond and his family and all Indigenous people. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.